0: You're listening to Faith in Politics, presented by Helen Byrne and Rachel Allison. Coming up this week, we have an interview with East Ham Labour MP Stephen Timms. Um, as ever, our rundown of the week's news and Reverend Leonardo joins us for the monthly musing. Enjoy. And a very quick update. This will be the last podcast before J. Pitt's conference, Brave New World, takes place in Methodist Central Hall in Manchester on the 17th of March. Our speakers are the Daily Mail columnist, Peter Oborn, and the Labour MP, Stella Creasy. More importantly, the distinguished creators of the podcast will be in attendance, so you'd be mad to miss it. Hello and welcome back to the second episode of Faith and Politics. My name is Helen Byrne, I'm one of Pitt's parliamentary interns and joining me this week in the absence of our other parliamentary intern Rachel Allison, who is off in South Africa, lucky for some, with Methodist Women in Britain, is my lovely colleague and JPEG intern, Madalena Leo.
1: I'm very well, and I'm I'm pleased to be here, Helen.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, it is a pleasure to have you, as ever. Any particular
1: story this week to kick things off? Well, to start, I was thinking about um, the Winter Olympics, which is not characteristic of my interest being a very unsporty individual but likewise mm-hmm. yeah but it's an um, it's an interesting thing because the Winter Olympics are being held in South Korea in a place called Pyongchang which has caused some confusion in my household with Pyongyang um, <laughs> they are different places <laughs> nevertheless um, North and South Korea have done two very interesting things when it was the opening ceremony they came out with a joint delegation under a flag of the United Korea and the photos of them
0: with the flag all together are very, quite powerful yeah, quite and very young, lovely
1: yeah and they forwarded a joint female hockey team which has been cheerleaded by some very interesting North Korean cheerleaders which is really worth giving a quick google and watching what they do mm-hmm. um, and to me this in some senses is just a good news story in terms of one little chink in the really very hostile relationship that happens that you know continues to exist between North and South Korea. Um, so that, that, that's the story I bring with me. I think there's an interesting question about what does this mean in terms of international safety? Are we safer, are we not safer because of the North Koreans coming mm. to the South Korean Olympics?
0: Or are they temporarily putting their differences aside for the sake of maybe taking a few medals? Might be the, the cynics approach, I suppose. But it's a lovely show of unity really and it's starting to see particularly because you don't tend to get a lot of good news coming out of either of the Koreas ever and because particularly um, for the rest of our podcast news today it's sort of all downhill from here Yeah,
1: and it's it's nice to think that there are some countries that can be a little bit more mature than the Trumps of this world who are turning around and saying my button's bigger than yours and I'm going to come down with fire and fury and I think that that's really something to take away from that
0: Definitely. Um, so, how does this relate then to Japit's interests and the UK's interests, where nuclear weapons are concerned?
1: Well, I think <laughs> to undermine slightly what I said it is worth reminding ourselves that despite this really interesting and really quite moving show of unity, uh, North Korea still has a nuclear weapons program. Um, the United States of America still has nuclear weapons. The United States of America's Vice President Mike Pence did not meet with the North Korean delegation in Pyeongchang, even though that was much trailed. And we are still in a position where we're not exactly under the threat of nuclear war, but occasionally we get a bit worried. And I think in those terms, the Nuclear Ban Treaty, which, as we at least at JPIT all know, came up in 2017 to start being ratified is still on the table for countries to sign and we're really still pushing very strongly for the British government to take those negotiations seriously. Mm.
0: And further good news on that front is that it was debated for a good hour and a half as far as I'm aware in the House of Lords yesterday um, so it's nice to see this issue in some attention Yeah. Um, at a time when it really should uh, when it's something that's ordinarily shelved to the bottom of people's agendas because Brexit and everything else.
1: Yeah exactly and, and so you know Reason for hope, in some senses, which is really nice. (laughs) Now, two reasons for
0: not hope. (laughs) Uh, So to move along uh, to our next story, we had wanted to discuss uh, the current situation in the north of Ireland at the minute. Um, You might have detected I am quite biased in my interest here. To fill anyone in, and again, I'm not entirely sure how how interested in... um, in the situation in Northern Ireland, uh, J-PIT listeners will necessarily be, I think we're very much seen at times as a bit of a, essentially a, a, just a, a tumour to the west of the remainder of the UK, if that's how you see things, that takes up a disproportionate amount of money and can't ever really hold itself together for particularly long, uh, which is, is fair in some senses. But the confusion at the minute stems from the fact that up until last Wednesday, um, when, of course, Theresa May and Leo Varadkar, who's the Taoiseach in Ireland, um, had flown over to, to more or less seal the deal, things did look very promising indeed. Um, as it stands now, um, we've just returned to, to gridlock. This is the 14th month of it. Um, times before when there has been you know, complete deadlock in the government, we have at least had ministers. So in that sense, this is an unprecedented situation, really.
1: And perhaps it's worth saying. For those who don't know, that um, Northern Ireland has a devolved government, a devolved power-sharing government, and the power-sharing fell apart about 14 months ago, and it's been it's been a it's been a rocky road, and we're still not at a point in government where there is where there is any agreement between the two key players. Yes, exactly. And the two key players are the DUP, the Democratic Unionists, who we. Our government gave a good billion pounds to when they went into coalition with them. So good good infrastructure and, for us uh, now, again, every cloud. And, um, and Sinn Féin, of course. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the stakes are high.
0: Um, the, the stakes are very high, particularly now. Because we have a situation at the minute where these huge decisions are being made by civil servants and very soon that might not even huge be Huge decisions c- about? Huge decisions with regards to the border, how a post-Brexit Northern Ireland might look, and uh, a lot of this stems back to Sinn Féin's demands for an, an Irish language act. There was a leaked document uh, just, just this morning actually, leaked almost certainly by Sinn Féin um, from what we know, uh, which referred to an Irish language bill, um, Very intriguingly, there are square brackets around this part of the draft deal, so it's been highlighted that this won't necessarily go ahead. Uh, The unionist community are very concerned in the sense that there has been quite a lot of scaremongering with the idea that there might be compulsory Irish teaching in schools, that Northern Ireland might now be full of bilingual road signs, when in reality that isn't really um, the case at all. And from the outside, it can sort of seem like with 13 or 14 months of no essential gridlock if they're not being a government whatsoever. Um, It's partly down to the fact that there isn't necessarily enough political will on either side. Mm -hmm. I mean, as far as the DUP are concerned, they have 10 MPs in government. Their interests are represented there. Sinn Féin do not take their seats in Westminster because they don't want to acknowledge its legitimacy. And it has been argued that just where unity is concerned, potential Irish unity after Brexit, uh, this could potentially serve their interests as well, which is why neither party is in any particular rush, um, mm. arguably, uh, to really sort of lock
1: anything down. And of course, the interesting thing is, you know, unlike a government shutdown in the USA, which can happen when you don't have an agreement on the budget and people don't get paid and all sorts of things like that, actually, yeah. Yeah, actually, what we're seeing is you do have a civil service, you do have pay people being paid, and in terms of the day-to-day running of the country that continues as normal. Mm. So it's just in, in terms of making the big political decisions that a lack of government becomes problematic.
0: Exactly, because in a sense, it's almost how you're not to have two warring factions in the room when <laughs> when you're making those decisions. Precisely. We might be even further behind on the border than we currently are um, if the DUP and Sinn Féin were involved in the negotiations. But I
1: suppose the really complicated thing here is that we're not just talking about a lack of government, we're talking about a position in which decisions are being made about the north of Ireland mm-hmm. by a British government, which isn't seen by a lot of people in the north of Ireland to fully represent the people who sit- live there. Yes, precisely. Mm-hmm. So we have a significant democratic deficit at a point when really important decisions are being made. And when we're talking about democratic deficit, shall we talk about other forms of unfortunate inequality
0: in our country. Other forms of unfortunate inequality. I feel like this is something that we are seeing more and more of. Perhaps this is because I have maybe gotten more interested and gone out of my way to to look at it. But a very interesting report was released just last week by the Longevity Science Forum, who track life expectancy in different parts of the UK and are very interested in what's called um, the social gradient of, Mm -hmm. of health.
1: And I mean, I haven't particularly read this report, I have to admit, but I'm always struck that within London, there's often reports about the difference in life expectancy between boroughs and mm. between, you know, and if we're talking about people geographically extraordinarily close, mm. that the life expectancy in one borough might be 10 years longer than the life expectancy in another, where it's a significantly poorer area. The
0: statistic that tends to be uh, wielded out there quite often is life expectancy along the Jubilee line. And you yeah, have from Westminster to Canningtown, which I, I may be wrong, I think is maybe eight stops. Mm-hmm. And the difference in life expectancy is seven or eight years, which is absolutely obscene. And that's what this report aims to highlight so much that good health is a right. And the fact that, you know, the social determinants of health, such as education, pollution, things that we can rightly change aren't being addressed.
1: And in terms of stresses on the NHS and in terms of if we want to move to a country where health potentially costs us less, addressing inequalities before people get ill or the causes of people getting ill is really important. I was listening to a really interesting discussion on the radio about ageing and they're talking about how we need to move towards people having a more active old age. But they're actually saying that's very well and good for middle class people or people Mm. from from richer backgrounds. But people who have experienced poverty are much more likely to have illness or infirmity in old age and we can't expect them to work. So actually, if we can get to the point at which we don't have this health inequality and we can see everyone getting to an old age in which they're living healthy lives, that can make a massive difference to our economy anyway. And what's highlighted um, mostly in this report, they look at what
0: they call a multi-dimensional um, index of disadvantage. And the key point that they make here is that the huge driver behind these trends is largely income inequality. Where income quality is concerned, um, I think the difficulty that we have is not necessarily looking at health in a holistic enough sense. Yeah. Yeah, in the sense that, you know, health is more than, as you said earlier, Madalena, you know, the absence of disease or how often you go to the doctor, health is about your overall general well-being. It encompasses not just sort of the physical aspects of things, but prosperity and happiness and welfare and preservation and safety. And these are things that are much much more prevalent, really, in less disadvantaged communities. Yeah,
1: and it's very important, I think, that when we talk about health inequality, it doesn't just become people are uneducated and therefore they make bad choices and therefore they are less healthy. Exactly. It's very clear that income inequality is linked to a multitude of factors, including questions about, you know, the environment you're living in, so either you're living in a very polluted area, you have damp in your house, or questions about you know, how much you have to work. Mm-hmm. All these things affect your health. It's not just people who experience poverty smoke. That's, you know, that's on, not that's As well,
0: and smoking levels are at an all-time low in the UK, which is why that, you can't draw that correlation anymore whatsoever. It simply doesn't, the figures don't stand up to it at all.
1: Any hope? I think, if it were me... I would want to say that at least some of these causes of health inequality in terms of environmental factors we're starting to take them more seriously mm-hmm. and that even though we you know even things like decisions about improving the air quality in the UK although that sounds like it's a decision that improves things for everyone it's particularly important for people who have low incomes because they're the most likely to live in areas Certainly within London, I'm not sure if this is true of the rest of the country, to live and be educated in areas where air pollution is particularly bad. Yes, so in that
0: sense, really there is some good news here. So to draw to a close then, I just wanted to thank Madalena again for joining me, and to thank very much, particularly returning listeners, to the Faith in Politics podcast.
2: Jesus said, Go and do likewise. That is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Clearly, Jesus is observing those who are different from his own tradition, from his own culture. And he's telling his disciples, his followers, go and imitate them. Do likewise. In saying, go and do likewise, Jesus is proposing a particular way of relating to his culture. Quite critical of his own culture, he's proposing an openness that is not, there yet and he would like it to start from his disciples. In our society today, our own society today, we have a culture of not welcoming the stranger. Uh, Brexit has given us a a particular perspective on those who come uh, and don't belong uh, necessarily to the culture that we are. The word of Jesus, his example, inspires us to be quite different, quite sharp on that and open a space for those who are not like us, even for us to learn from them. Samaritans perhaps even have a different take on the faith, a different spirituality, and Jesus is observing them. He is relating to them. He is engaging with them. And out of that engagement, out of that observation, out of that relationship with those who are different from his own tradition, he is taking a lesson and suggesting his disciples to do likewise. Saturday, past last Saturday, uh, we had a picnic a bit early in the year, the 17th of February. Who would call a picnic for the 17th of February a bit crazy? It was a national uh, event to say not one day without immigrants, without refugees, what those who are different from us. Not one day in our country without them. So we organized a picnic in the area where I live. People from the church, people from other organizations. Two Syrian refugee families, young families, came to the picnic. Both from homes in Syria. And was a great way of getting to know them. To observe them more closely. To learn from them. One of the families live in the compounds of the church where I serve as a minister. To create a relationship, to form a link, is not the easiest of the things, but it is possible. And Jesus showed us how that can inspire us to enrich our spiritual lives, to enrich our taking the world and our horizons. And then based on that relationship, things that we learn, Jesus says, well, not only relate to them, but go and do likewise. The church and uh, other organizations are proposing a new model of uh, being a society where we welcome the stranger, we receive those who are different from us with open arms, we relate to them and give them a special place where even things that are deep, uh, to be learned from, the, from them is possible.
3: Hello, and welcome back to the Faith in Politics podcast. This month we're interviewing Labour MP Stephen Timms. Um, So welcome to our podcast Stephen. Thank you. um, And thank you for agreeing to be interviewed um, by us today. So Stephen is the Labour MP for East Ham and has held that seat since 1994. In the last election he gained the largest vote share of any MP in the UK of 83.2%, leading East Ham to be named as the safest seat in the UK. He has been Minister of State for State Schools, Minister for Pensions, um, Chief Secretary to the Treasury as well as the parliamentary private secretary to Mo Molan. Stephen has been chair of Christians on the Left and in 2007 he became the first Labour vice chair of faith groups. Stephen is now the Labour Party's faith envoy. And before his career in politics he worked in telecoms industry for 15 years. So our first question, Stephen, must be, so what got you involved in politics?
4: Well, What happened was, when I was a student a very long time ago, I spent a couple of weeks one summer helping on a a church project in Forest Gate, in what is now uh, the the, the borough I represent as MP. We were only there two weeks, but I really enjoyed it. And so when I left university, I got a job in London working in a computer firm, as you mentioned, Uh, I wanted to live in London. The only place I knew was this place where I'd helped out on the the church project and made some friends. So I decided to go and live there. I rented a a room in the house of one of the people who'd been involved in, in the project. And I also joined the Labour Party at the same time. I'd always been interested in politics. I'd never done anything about it. I didn't do any politics as a student at all. But coming to London, I thought that was an opportunity to... Pursue that interest, so I, I joined the party and just gradually got more and more involved.
3: That's really interesting. So, what made you make the decision to become an MP? Because it's quite a big step from being a local councillor.
4: It went step by step. So, to begin with, I became my local branch secretary in Little Ilford branch, and then I became the constituency secretary, and then I became a councillor, and then I became chair of the planning committee, and then I became leader of the council. I did that job for four years, from nineteen ninety to ninety four. And then in February '94, just as I was coming to the end of my council term, the previous MP had a heart attack and died. So there was a, a vacancy, um, and I decided to, to stand. You know, If that had happened a couple of years later, I might well have been out of the frame entirely. But as it was, it was a very natural thing for me as the leader of the council to stand for the vacancy, and I was selected by the Labour Party to be its candidate.
3: Very interesting. So you talk, you talk a lot about how your faith and your politics interact. In the past, you've said people usually say that you should not mix religion and politics. But in my experience, faith in Christ is a great starting point for political work. Can you expand on that? What, you know? What's your experience between mixing
4: faith and politics? Yeah, well, I, I completely understand that people a lot of the time will, when they're talking about faith and politics, they look at a problem somewhere in the world and say, that's what happens when you mix up religion and politics and it's always a disaster they say but I think people are drawing the wrong lesson from what's going on I think the truth is that religious faith is a great starting point for politics because it is the source of exactly the values that we need to make politics work responsibility solidarity compassion patience truthfulness where are those values being instilled in our communities today? The answer is in churches and, by the way, also in mosques uh, and in uh, temples. In, in, I see a lot of that in, in my constituency. But they're certainly being instilled in, in churches. Um, and so what I want to see is that many more people coming into politics from a starting point of religious faith, and feeling that they're welcomed when they they do so. Because I think sometimes people get involved and they kind of get the impression, oh yeah, we're very pleased you're here, but please don't talk to us about your faith. That's nothing to do with us. You please leave that behind when you come and get involved in politics. I think that's a very wrong response on the part of the political organisations. I think we need to be really welcoming people, whose starting point is religious faith, because they are bringing with them qualities that we urgently need in our politics. And if it's true, and I think it is, that the values that successful politics are based on have been eroded over the last few years, I think that's one of the problems politics has got itself into some difficulties, then we really need to be encouraging people who are coming in with exactly those values, and people in churches fit the bill, in my view, absolutely perfectly. I would like to have a lot more of them getting involved.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I've been a member of the Labour Party since 2012, um, and I feel that when I talk about my faith within the Labour Party context is not always welcome. Mm. And actually, I was—we were talking about this just before the interview—that um, the Labour Party hasn't always has a very difficult relationship with faith; it hasn't always been the most welcoming. For example, um, Alistair Campbell said um, during the New Labour years that the Labour Party doesn't do God. What was it like to be a Christian MP during that time when the Labour Party seems so adverse to even talking about faith?
4: Well, I think it's worth looking over a a rather longer period. I mean, the reality, of course, is the Labour Party came out of Methodism. It's the Methodist movement. And what was happening in in the chapels, that were the genesis of the Labour movement and of, in due course, the, the Labour Party. So our roots as a party are very firmly in the Christian faith now of course over a long period all sorts of things happened uh, and i think perhaps particularly after world war 1 actually those roots were were weakened and there are other things that were uh, going on but uh, and so i got involved in the the labour party right at the end of the the 1970s and i joined what was then called the christian socialist movement and and found there actually quite a lot of christians who were active in the Labour Party. That was the organisation which we now call Christians on the Left that I was uh, chair of. And you know, actually, there are quite a lot of members of, of that, and um, if you're not a member, please do join, because uh, we're, we're looking for more. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I made two points, I think, in answer to your question about what it was like to be a Labour Party. I mean, the first question is, why did I become the MP for East Ham? Why, why was it I was supported? Because I vividly remember, when I first joined the Labour Party, end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, the borough of Newham where I live was already thought of as quite a multi-faith area. I'd been very active in my Christian union at university that had taken up most of my spare time and I thought coming to Newham, getting involved in the Labour Party, I'd be thought of as a bit of a kind of Holy Joe, rather dodgy character. Um, But actually it wasn't like that at all. In fact, it was really the reverse. Um, What I found was that people of faith, Muslims, Hindus, were much more comfortable dealing with another person of faith, albeit of a different faith, than they were in dealing with somebody who had no faith at all. So when my predecessor was MP, Ron Layton, had a heart attack and died in February 1994, the first person who came to see me, to urge me to run for the the role, was the chair of the Alliance of Newer Muslim Associations. And he said to me, you believe in God, we believe in God, we think you should go for this job. And that's really why I had the support to be selected. So far from being a kind of handicap um, in my political role, the fact that I was known to be a Christian was certainly in that instance, and actually in other instances as well, was undoubtedly um, an asset. And um, Going on... Uh, a few more years and, uh, as you say, we got to the Labour government elected in 1997 and Alistair Campbell's famous comment, in fact I think Alistair Campbell regards that as the most famous thing he's ever said, um, we don't do God, um, but of course Tony Blair did do God um, and um uh, so did Gordon Brown, uh, a son of, of the manse. So, and, and lots of the other leading figures in the party of that, at that time did as well. So it was never true that Christians weren't involved in the Labour Party uh, at all. And I certainly never felt I was under any sort of pressure or disapproval uh, within the party on the basis of my faith. I remember once doing an interview when I was minister for schools with the Times Educational Supplement, and they thought it was a bit peculiar, being a Christian and being responsible for schools. But in terms of the view in the party, I I never felt there was any problem at all. That's not to say there are not problems. I think there are, and I think your experience in just finding that people don't really want to talk about it is, is a very common one, and one that the party needs to overcome. But um, I've I, I not run into problems for a long time within the party.
3: So why do you think Alastair Campbell made that comment? If there's so many Christians actually in the leading lights and have come out afterwards and talked about their faith a lot, Tony Blair's a very good example of that. Why did he make that statement?
4: Well, Tony Blair did talk about it when he was Prime Minister. He spoke often, uh, well, not often, he's spoken a number of times to the Christian socialist movement, now Christians on the left. But I think what Alastair Campbell wanted to avoid was Tony Blair being pressed in the media about his faith. And that's where I think the difficulty is. It's in kind of handling the media. It's not really within the party. That isn't usually where the problem arises. It's when you are put under pressure in the media. And I I guess we've seen an example of that recently with, with Tim Farron and some of the things that he's been... Uh, saying and, and and doing. So, you know, Alistair Gamble's job was to keep uh, Tony Blair away from embarrassing media incidents, and he decided that saying we don't do God was, uh, whether he still thinks it was a good idea, I don't know.
3: Now, as we mentioned earlier, you the F- envoy for faith for the Labour Party. What do you think needs to change or... Um has changed in the last couple of years for the better in the Labour Party when we're talking about faith?
4: Well, let me talk first of all about my work as uh, the party's faith envoy. Uh, by the way, uh, this goes back to the appointment that Gordon Brown made, as, as you mentioned in your introduction, of me as the Labour Party vice chair for faith groups. Then, when Ed Miliband became party leader, he asked if I would take on this faith envoy role, and then Jeremy Corbyn asked me to continue when he became leader. Um, in 2015. So uh, the, the uh, something that I do in that role, which I'd be keen to tell everybody about, is that I produce a Labour Party Churches update three times a year. And anyone who's interested can go onto the Labour Party website, where you'll find a faith page People are quite often surprised to discover that there is a faith page on the Labour Party website, but there is. And you can put your email address in there and we will then email you the Labour Party Churches Update three times a year. If there's any difficulty in doing that, then please come on to my website, stephentims.org.uk, and you can do it by that route as well. And you can see on there all the previous issues of Churches Update um, as well. Um, And... Jeremy, as party leader, I think recognises very fully the importance of faith groups. He told me on one occasion that he thinks he spends much more time in religious meetings than most religious people because he visits churches and mosques and temples in his own constituency. And I, I, I think he does understand how important this is to people's values. To to community cohesion, actually. You know, because you look at a constituency like mine, which we claim is the most diverse community on the planet, and I think people thinking about a community like that assume that it must be a pretty fragmented place because people come from literally every country on the globe. But actually, we're not a fragmented community. We're a cohesive community. And I think the reason is that the great majority of people do belong to a church or a mosque or a temple and belonging to one of those things extends to having a sense of belonging to the community and so to building cohesion, bringing people together uh, religious faith, in my experience, does not divide people in London. It brings large numbers of people together. And there aren't many things that do bring large numbers of people together. So they're contributing to, 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 to building cohesion. And the party, certainly the party leader, I think recognises that. Um, and that does give a, a, a good basis for a positive engagement on behalf of the party with faith groups and individuals who are people of faith. And I want to see uh, more of that happening. The other thing I should mention, we do every party conference. We organise a faith's reception, which we invite all delegates to. Um, and we've had a, a well-attended series of Uh, annual conference faith receptions, just to affirm the importance of faith, religious faith, within the life of the the party. We always also have a conference service. Uh, Christians on the Left organises that. It's a very well attended event and the party leader uh, comes along and speaks as Jeremy did this year.
3: Yeah, but just to address kind of the elephant in the room that always comes when you talk about faith and you talk about um, the Labour Party is anti-Semitism. And that's become a seemingly more public problem or more in the news recently since Jeremy Corbyn's taken over as leader. What kind of things do you think the Labour Party needs to do to address that problem? Is it actually a problem or is it just the press um, making a storm. So what's your opinion? No, on that? I
4: think I think there are Jewish members of the party who feel they've had a, a rough time, and I think the party needs to respond to that and address it. So I very strongly support the work of the Jewish labor movement, uh, which is one of the, uh, the, the the faith groups in the party. I think they do a great job, and I think the party needs to listen to them. and I was very pleased that their initiative for a rule change at the party, uh, conference last year was was agreed, and and uh, that change has been made. And there may well be other things that we we need to do. But the 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 role of the Jewish Labour Movement, I think, is a very important one.
3: Well, it's good to hear that things are changing, things are moving on. Yeah. So, c- continuing with the kind of um, the more recent aspects of the Labour Party you've been involved in, we've heard that in the news that you turned down a junior ministerial post in Corbyn's cabinet. Is that? Are there any reasons that you felt that you couldn't take that role on um, in the current climate?
4: Well, uh, Jeremy, it's it's true, Jeremy, uh, when he became leader, asked if I would be interested in taking on a role, actually, in the shadow treasury team. Um, And it kind of would have meant going backwards to something that I did years previously. And it would also have meant that I was shadowing somebody who had previously shadowed me. So I just decided that it was an opportunity to move on and do something different. He also asked if I would continue as the party faith envoy. And I uh, was absolutely delighted to continue doing that. Um, But my main parliamentary commitments now are around select committee membership. I'm a member of the, the Brexit select committee in particular and you know that's a very fulfilling role and I, I think it was sort of sensible to make that change having been on the shadow front bench i think for longer than anybody at that point i don't think yeah. any member of the front, yeah. front bench has yeah. been yeah, on, on, on that long so um you yeah, know it was probably time for a change for from the party's <laughs> point of view and for mine
3: yeah we read it was you've been on the front bench 17 years yes that's sounds that right <laughs> a yeah. long period of time um, well after you came off the front bench, you were the Permanent Private Secretary to Mo Merlin when the Good Friday Agreement was being signed. What was it like to be involved in such a momentous time for Irish politics? And what are your reflections on kind of what's happening in Ireland today?
4: Well, it was a great time. Um, I wasn't directly involved in the negotiations. In fact, the reason Mo asked me to be her number two Parliamentary Private Secretary, it was the time when we were in the very first Comprehensive Spending Review, looking at the, the, the three-year spending plan for all government departments. Mo was locked in the negotiations. And uh, didn't really have the, uh, the the time to give to the financial questions, and so she asked me to come in and, and, and lead on that work for her. But of course, I was around when negotiations were happening, and uh, was occasionally in in the room. And I I saw Mo at work, and was profoundly impressed by the way she handled those negotiations and the Good Friday Agreement I think was an absolutely vital and um, hugely important moment which brought to an end a terrible period in UK history. There are some concerns around at the moment, obviously we haven't got a devolved government in Northern Ireland at the moment, I hope we soon will have. There are worries as well, and I mentioned my membership of the Brexit Select Committee, where there are worries about what Brexit is going to do to to the future of Northern Ireland, because what everybody agrees is that there should be no hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. But it's actually very, very difficult to see how the UK can come out of the European Union and not get hard border between northern ireland and the republic of ireland and that issue was sort of glossed over in the agreement that was reached just before christmas but it wasn't it wasn't resolved and i still don't know how it's going to be resolved we were asking the secretary of state for leaving the uh, european union david davis at the select committee this morning to tell us more about that and there aren't as yet i'm afraid any Convincing answers. So, there are some troubling things happening here which we just need to keep a very close eye on because nobody in Northern Ireland or indeed anywhere else wants us to go back to the terrible times that we had before the Good Friday Agreement.
3: Well, thank you for being um, interviewed by us this morning, Stephen. And, thank you for um, coming. Don't forget to tune in next time when we'll be interviewing Baroness Farsey. So, thanks for listening. You've been listening to Bait in Politics with Helen Baird to love